let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning we would hear your word and we would take it to heart and that through its instruction and rebuke and correction and training we would grow up to maturity as followers of Jesus, people who can live stable and purposeful lives in this world. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I was uh, reading an article that contained uh, these two paragraphs. I know of a church, wrote the author Ben Patterson, whose new pastor has led it into serious, even fatal, theological error. The mystery is that his predecessor, a thoroughly orthodox, godly and beloved man, had pastored the church for more than three decades and had never preached anything but the gospel truth. How could this happen? I asked a friend who knew the church, she explained, he told them the truth all those years. What he didn't tell them was what wasn't the truth. He said the yes, but he never said the no. And because he didn't, his people never really heard the yes. They weren't so thoroughly taught after all. Now, I don't anticipate that any successor you call will lead you into serious theological error, just like I don't anticipate Anticipate hanging around to be the pastor for another 10 years. But it did get me thinking. There is a lot of non-truth out there, a lot of lies masquerading as truth from God, lies which are, as in Jeremiah's time, spoken in the Lord's name, claiming his authority. And becoming mature believers is stopping being, in the words of Ephesians 4, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. To grow up as believers, we must be equipped and trained to discern truth from lies, to not be taken in by false teaching and false prophecy. And Jeremiah 23 will help us do that. It will equip us to recognise those who peddle lies in God's name, It will teach us to recognise the kind of fruit their lives bear in their own lives and the lives of their hearers, the type of dangerous message liars bring and the presumptuous boldness and unbelief that is behind the liar's claim to speak for God. So that's our goal this morning, to nurture maturity by learning how to distinguish truth from error lies, liars from those who speak God's word faithfully. And if you're not yet a believer, what you can see in Jeremiah 23 is that God is determined that what he says, what originates from him, does not become confused with what people might want to put into God's mouth. And that's good because it means you and I uh, can know the living God through his own word. We can hear his warnings as real. And know because they are spoken by the Almighty God that we can rely on his promises. Now, Jeremiah introduces the subject by saying concerning the prophets. And that's why we need to be alert and discerning. The peddlers of lies don't come wearing hats with the word liar emblazoned emblazoned across them. False prophets don't come wearing a T-shirt that says, believe me and shipwreck your faith. Right, That was particularly the case with the prophets Jeremiah was speaking of, the prophets of Jerusalem. 
You see, they weren't prophesying in the name of another god like the prophets of Samaria. The prophets of Jerusalem prophesy in the name of the Lord. We actually have an example of that in chapter 28 in the prophet Hananiah uh, who prophesies uh, to contradict Jeremiah. And listen to the way he introduces his prophecy. I'm reading from verse 1. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of King Zedekiah of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, the prophet Hananiah, son of Asaph from Gibeon, said to me in the temple of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. And he goes on, verse 4, and says, this is the Lord's declaration. You see, the prophets of Jerusalem were part of the religious establishment with a time-honoured role in the life of the people of Judah, the people of the Lord, alongside the king and priest. Jeremiah is speaking of respectable officials who use all the right phrases, wear the right clothes, have acceptance amongst the people. These are not fringe crazies. They're not outsiders but insiders. They couldn't be distinguished from a true prophet like Jeremiah by style of delivery or social status or even external religious practice. So how could people discern true from false prophets? How can we? By looking, says the Lord here in Jeremiah 23, at their lives and the impact of their preaching and at the content and origin of their message. You see, it was our Lord wasn't it, as you heard, who said in Matthew 7, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognise them by their fruit. And in verses 10 to 15 of our passage, Jeremiah points to the fruit borne by these lying prophets in their own lives and the lives of their hearers. And you get a summary of their conduct and effect in verse 14. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of evildoers and none turns his back on evil. They're all like Sodom to me. (coughs) Look at their lives and ministry, says Jeremiah, and you see three things. Firstly, they commit adultery. Jeremiah is referring firstly to their spiritual adultery. No matter how religious or respectable, they are not faithful to the Lord. They're giving their love and loyalty to other gods. In this case, they're putting their faith in themselves as they put their word in the place of God's. Substitute what they desire to happen in the place of what God says will happen. And they want to seduce others away from their loyalty to the Lord. Later in the chapter, verse 27, Jeremiah says, They plan to cause my people to forget my name as their ancestors forgot my name through bar worship. And that is both the goal and inevitable outcome of lying prophecy. You see, where a human word is substituted for the Lord's, it means people's trust is in the human speaker. And not hearing the Lord, they forget him. These prophets, speaking out of their own imaginations, are substituting themselves for the Lord as the object of their own and others' faith. And that's true for false teachers as well. But where they think they can set aside the word of the Lord for their own words, they'll also set aside the commands of God for what they want to do. They will live disobedient lives. So some of these prophets, Jeremiah tells us, 
were physical adulterers, sinning confidently without fear of God. So he speaks of two, Ahab the son of Kaliah and Zedekiah son of Messiah, who he's going to hand over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Why? Verse 23, they have committed an outrage in Israel by committing adultery with their neighbours' wives. So some gave themselves to adultery. Others, perhaps many, have embraced greed, set aside the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is making profit dishonestly. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. In fact, the prophet Micah had earlier described the lying prophets of his day as people who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against anyone who puts nothing in their mouths. They're people whose prophetic activity is directed by self-enrichment, by satisfaction of their appetites. Sin, breaking the Lord's commandments, is easier when you make your own word the final authority. For we can always find a way to justify our desires. Whether the sin comes first and the false teaching follows to justify their sin, as is the case for many advocating that the church accepts same-sex behaviour in marriage, for example, Jean Robinson, the first openly gay man living in a homosexual relationship to be consecrated a bishop in the US Episcopalian Church, always been an advocate for the legitimisation of same-sex sexual practice amongst Christians. So the sin might come first, the false teaching follow, but sometimes the sin follows a conviction of their own authority and power as prophets, which then finds expression in pursuing the fulfilment of their own desire, like Joseph Smith of the Mormons or Jim Jones or many cult leaders who have used their authority to coerce sexual favours from those who believe them or like many word of faith prosperity gospel preachers who have claimed visions of Jesus to justify their greed and accumulation of obscene wealth at the expense of their followers. Whether sin comes first or follows, behaviour is always a good test of whose word rules in the lives of prophets and teachers. So that's the first fruit, spiritual adultery, where their trust is in and their obedience is given to their own words, an idolatry that's soon expressed in setting aside God's commands in favour of doing what they desire. And secondly, they walk in lies. Not everything these prophets might say is untrue, but lies guide their conduct and direct their decisions. The lies they believe, the lies they tell. And, of course, the big lie is that their word can equal God's word, come with the same authority and reliability that they can put their words in God's mouth. And from that lie come all the other lies that shape their lives, whether in the case of prophets of Jerusalem, the lie that they can enjoy God's blessing without repentance, or today that God has changed his mind about human sexuality or now condones greed. Walking in lies, they progress further and further in falsehood. Their life becomes bound up with their lies to the point that they cannot tell truth from falsehood, cannot extricate themselves, for they've made their thoughts the foundation of truth and so have no reference point outside themselves and what they say. Adultery, 
walking in lies. But the fruit of their prophesying is also seen, thirdly, in the lives of the people, and it is bad fruit. They strengthen the hand of evildoers, so none turns back from his evil. Whether it's because they only speak about positive things or are unclear in their warnings or offer grace without repentance or start calling evil good, where they are ministering, their impact on others is not to turn people from sin but to encourage them in it, sanctioning evil. They approve what the Bible condemns and are silent about the repentance the Bible commands, like bishops who bless same-sex unions or who appoint openly gay clergy, or preachers who endorse covetousness by their prosperity teaching. And they can do this while seeming so respectable, so nice, able to say good, positive things. That's why you need to be alert. For example, many of us heard the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, speaking at the Queen's funeral in the King's Congregation, It didn't sound too bad, did it? But he has said at the beginning of this year he was extremely joyful at proposals to allow clergy to offer God's blessing to same-sex couples who have legally married. Happy at clergy, his clergy, blessing what God forbids. False prophets and false teachers don't turn people from a focus on living for self, nor do they encourage people to deal with sin, with the result that where they're received and not resisted, they lead to a polluted and fruitless land and nation. From the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has spread throughout the land. Lying prophecy, especially in Jerusalem, in the temple, was like pollution at the source of a stream. It affects everything downstream, the whole life of God's people. And just as lying prophecy in Jeremiah's day affected the whole land, so lying prophecy and false teaching in theological colleges and pulpits affects the whole church. The ultimate authority for what Christians do and believe is the word of God. It is, to change the metaphor, like our foundation which determines the shape and the stability of the faith built upon it. If it's corrupted by being mixed with words from the human imagination pretending to be the word of God, all that is built on it is unstable, for some of the foundation is unreliable. All that flows from a polluted source is corrupted. That's why lies in the name of God are so destructive. And by not turning people from their sin, lies in the name of God ensures, in Jeremiah's case, that the curses for covenant disobedience come upon the land. And in our case, as we heard in Matthew 7, it ensures that those who think their religious activity makes them safe will hear at the last day, depart from me, you lawbreakers. Lying prophecy... Lying teaching produces bad fruit always. Now, why? Well, it's because of its message and its origin. The message of these lying prophets, you see, sounds like it's such a comforting one, a message people wanted to hear. You will have peace. No harm will come to you. 
Oh, peace, peace, they say. And the proclamation of peace could take a very specific form, as you as we hear in the prophecy of Hananiah. Listen, he's saying, within two years I'll restore to this place all the articles of the Lord's temple that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took from here and transported to Babylon. I will restore to this place Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon. Two years. Now, can you imagine what hearing that meant for those in Jerusalem who had family in exile in Babylon. What it would mean for those who felt the humiliation of having had the temple pillaged. Oh, what it would mean for those living in fear of yet more foreign oppression. How they would long for this word to be true. And it sounded plausible as lies can do. You see, Isaiah in the past had spoken of the protection of Jerusalem and it was miraculously saved. And yes, Isaiah in the past had promised peace after judgment. Oh, because of his sinful greed, I was angry. I struck him, right? I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. Peace, peace to the one who is near and far. So these prophets speak the language of the Bible, just like those who speak of God as a God of love when defending behaviour God condemns, or speak of God as a God who promises abundant life when promoting God as the great booster of our own plans. They speak the language of the Bible. But notice to whom these lying prophets were speaking peace. They keep on saying to those who despise me, you will have peace. They have said to everyone who follows the stubbornness of his heart, no harm will come to you. They're speaking peace to those whom we know from Jeremiah 7 were going up to the temple and yet following other gods, oppressing the poor and weak amongst them and keeping on breaking the Lord's commandments and who, when warned of judgment, refused to repent. Now, this is not those to whom Isaiah had promised peace. He had spoken, if you read Isaiah 57.15, comfort to the humble and the contrite in heart, that is, to the repentant. He had never said that peace was for the unrepentant. In fact, he'd said There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. We mustn't be sucked in by the words false teachers use. These lying prophets, false teachers, they've got Bible words, but not Bible truth. You must put their words in the context of the teaching of the whole Bible to see whether they are using them as the Bible does. And then, for example, you find the God of love is also the God of light who cannot abide evil. And the the abundant life promised is for those who deny themselves, take up their cross and follow the Lord Jesus in lives of obedient love. But now we do know why no one's turning away from evil under the ministry of these prophets, don't we? They are being told that there's no need. No need for repentance. God would bless them anyhow. 
the very ones who might have been saved if they had heeded the warning were being lulled into a false sense of security, of safety by these lying words. Here you see the cruelty of false teaching, don't you? In promising peace when God was warning of judgment, they were robbing people of peace like false teachers in the Christian church rob of eternal peace. So where did they get that message? Well, they speak visions from their own minds. The message comes from them, from their own imaginations or reflection. And Jeremiah emphasises that in verses 18 to 22. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word, he says. The counsel of the Lord is a picture taken from the courts of ancient kings. The king's council was where they'd have reports and decisions would be made. And so this is a way of saying that true prophets are equipped to communicate the Lord's decisions, his will, because they are present where the decisions are made and announced. They stand in the counsel of the Lord. They hear from the Lord himself and so could declare his word confidently to his people. And Jeremiah is saying if these prophets had really stood there, then they would speak his word. But the word, verses 19 and 20, from the counsel of the Lord is not peace. A storm's gone out from the Lord. The Lord's anger will not turn away. It was the word Jeremiah had been speaking. These prophets had presumptuously put themselves in the place of God's messengers. I didn't send them, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. Their ministry is all their own initiative. And the message and its outcome shows that. If they had really stood in my counsel, they would have enabled my people to hear my words and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. True prophets... Those who receive their words from the Lord always turn people away from their wickedness. Their word, like the gospel word, turns drunkards to sobriety, abusers to gentleness, liars to truthfulness, the money-hungry to generosity, the proud to humility, the rebel to repentant faith. But those who were, whose words strengthen sinners in their sin are not from God. Their message comes from their own minds, even though they say it comes from God. And that presumption shows contempt of God, the unbelief at the heart of their activity. Am I a God who is only near? See, what a small view of God these lying prophets must have had to think that they could make their words equal to God's, even substitute their words for God's. What a small view of God to think as lying prophets and deceitful teachers do that you can co-opt God's authority to further your own purposes by presenting your thoughts as God's word, to think you can impersonate God in the lives of his people. And so, as you see, God speaks three questions verses 23 to 24, to remind us and these lying prophets that he is no small God, that there is nowhere they can hide from him, no place they can speak his words. 
speak where their words are not heard. And verse 25, he says, he has heard. Oh, and he knows what they're saying and what they intend to make his people forget him. But in the end, he says, it will not succeed. For there is an infinite difference between God's words and human words, between what God plans and reveals and people's dreams. The prophet who has only a dream should recount the dream. But the one who has my word should speak my word truthfully. For what is straw compared to grain? Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that pulverizes rock? God's word nourishes, but human words pretending to be God's words have no sustaining value. God's words like fire, irresistible in achieving its purpose. God's word is like a hammer that shatters stone. Nothing, not even the most unyielding opposition, can stop it being fulfilled. Are the issues not dreams because God's used dreams to communicate truth to his people? Think of Joseph and Daniel. The difference is in the content and origin of what is spoken, the fact that one word comes from God and the other only from sinful and fallible people. And the word that comes from God doesn't need extra adornment or editing or addition. It only needs to be spoken truthfully. God's prophet, teachers in congregations, must speak faithfully, not confusing what God has said, not mingling it with other words God has not spoken, not adding to or subtracting from what God has said. The prophet who has God's word must speak it truthfully, for God never lies. And the God who sees and hears all does not take the action of these lying prophets lightly. Did you hear that? Three times he says, I am against the prophets. The prophets who steal my words from each other, that is, who peddle recycled rubbish as if it's God's word who say of their own words, verse 31, thus says the Lord, who tell lying dreams and lead his people astray with reckless lies who are no benefit, no use to anyone. The Lord's against them. It's a serious thing to put your own thoughts and words into the mouth of God, to teach your own ideas as the truth of God. A serious thing because lying prophets and lying teachers are not doing the work of God no matter what they claim for themselves. You see, often they'll claim to be rescuing the church or bringing an exciting deepening of our experience of God. But in putting their words in the place of God's word, they're actually doing the work of the devil and they will suffer his fate. It is the devil, said our Lord, who is a liar and the father of lies. And Paul can say of those who were false apostles that they're servants of Satan and that those who were false teachers in Ephesus were peddling the teaching of demons. It is a serious thing to put your own thoughts and words into the mouth of God, to teach your own ideas as the truth of God. But that is actually a danger for us all. And that's the point of verses 33 to 40 that includes all the people, prophets and priests in speaking of the burden of the Lord. Now, when these people or a prophet or a priest ask you, what is the burden of the Lord? 
Now, to understand what's going on in these verses, you need to know three things. Firstly, that some of the prophets whose ministry came before Jeremiah's would refer to the word given them by God as a burden, which in our versions is often translated as oracle, but in more literal versions like the ASV, they leave it there, the burden of Babylon. The sense was the oracle was a heavy load entrusted by the Lord to the prophet to be delivered to the people. Oh, secondly, we need to see that some of the people, not just the prophets, were using this word either when they were inquiring for guidance or when they were giving guidance. But in the latter case, they were using it to introduce their own thoughts. Its poetic, metaphorical nature allowed them leeway to fudge, to be comfortable in dressing up their own impressions as equivalent to the word of God, where, verse 36, each man's word becomes his burden and you pervert the words of the living God. And thirdly, (coughs) the Lord is using a play on words to condemn the practice of using this term to introduce their own thoughts as coming from God. Now, when these people or a prophet or a priest ask you, what is the burden of the Lord? You will respond to them, what is the burden? I will throw you away. You see, when they ask about the burden of the Lord, the Lord says, they are really the Lord's burden and he intends to stop carrying it. He's going to give them the toss. They are no longer, says the Lord, to use this term. Instead, they're to be clear and exact in their language. They're to ask, what has the Lord answered? What has the Lord spoken? Because that allows no room to fudge, to sanctify their own insights and impressions as coming from God. Either the Lord has spoken or he hasn't. And the Lord's very clear about the consequences of not changing what they say. If you say the burden of the Lord, when I've specifically told you not to say the burden of the Lord, I will surely forget you. I will throw you away from my presence. So why has the Lord determined they stopped this practice? It really sounds so pious and at one level so impressive. You know, the person nobly shouldering the weight of this precious insight given by God. Well, it's because, again, it's contempt of God to put your words in his mouth, to let your thoughts masquerade as his thoughts. This way of talking was co-opting the living almighty God to give authority to their own plans and hopes. And God says it infuriates him. And those who think that God is their servant to help them promote themselves and their ideas have no place with him, no matter how pious their language might sound. Now, why have I laboured this point? It's because this contemptuous co-opting of God to support our own plans is a possibility for us all. Christians can develop unhelpful ways of talking that sound pious but are wrongly clothing our own thoughts with God's authority. Now, thankfully, I don't hear it often here, but I've heard believers in relation to some decisions speak like this. I think the Lord is telling us this is what. Oh, the Lord told me that. Uh, The Lord's saying. And they, they weren't talking about something in the Bible. They could be talking about, you know, the direction the church should go, what we might spend money on or how we should approach a problem. But that way of talking is wrong and profoundly unhelpful. Unless the Lord literally spoke to you, 
That way of speaking is a coercive way of promoting your own opinion in the group, removing it from criticism and shutting down debate. Because who can debate with what God says? It's a coercive way of investing what you are thinking with the Lord's authority. It's better to speak more truthfully, isn't it? To say something like, as I've reflected and prayed, I'm starting to think that this is what we should do for these reasons. And then we can all be grateful you're reflecting on and praying about our common problem and test your reasoning by what scripture says or collective common sense. And it'll actually be helpful to you to learn to speak that way too because to get into the habit of confusing your intuitions with what God is saying to you is a is dangerous. It's a highway to disappointment. God will keep his word, but he won't keep yours, right? Because we have a great capacity to be self-deceived, especially where we are heavily emotionally invested. Lying prophets. The outcome for those who speak lies in God's name, no matter how respectable they are, and those who believe in them is not good. The Lord said the prophets and the people of Jerusalem who followed them had become like Sodom and Gomorrah to him. And like Sodom and Gomorrah, they were destroyed when the Babylonians returned and destroyed the city, just as the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah had said would happen to a people who would not repent. See, the prophets' lies gave false assurance. They they carried no authority and they harmed not helped. We need to take what Jeremiah reveals about lying prophets, the fruit we see in their lives and ministry of disobedience to God and no turning away from sin in their hearers. Oh, about the nature of their message, always giving false comfort to those who refuse to repent and so condemning them to judgment. About the origin of their message in their own imagination and the great offence it is to God when people make their words equivalent to his words, oppose their empty, powerless words to his powerful word. We need to take what we learn here to heart. For both scripture and church history tell us that false prophets and false teachers will always be with us. There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, says Peter. We all need to grow up, (coughs) to stop being children and instead train ourselves to discern truth from lies, to distinguish those who teach the word of God faithfully from those who seek to use God to promote their own ideas and fulfil their own desires. And Jeremiah 23 is a start. But to keep growing, we have to make sure we know the truth through reading the word for ourselves, learning to come to conviction about how we should think or live through being convinced that this is what God's word teaches and have the habit of going to the word. But more, we have to love the truth, be always glad to change our minds to conform to what it teaches, Delight in it, like the psalmist, Psalm 19, for whom the word is more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. Delight in it, (coughs) even when it confronts our desires or actions or is not what we want to hear, for this word will give us life. 
And so we have to be willing to say the no, to call lies as lies, as well as say the yes, affirm the truth. And not just to ourselves, but to our brothers and sisters in conversation or growth group or in our homes. And yes, (coughs) just as pastors have to say the no, parents have to say the no as well. So parents, when you tell your children the Lord says they should marry a Christian, do you also say they shouldn't marry someone who's not a Christian? Or when you teach that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman, do you tell them that all sex outside that context is wrong? Or do you worry that that'll get them into trouble in their classroom? Or when you tell them God has spoken to us in the scriptures, do you tell them in our pluralistic accepting society (coughs) that what people say from their own imagination about God is wrong? We've got to love the word and we have to teach the no. For lies destroy, but God's true word turns us from sin to God and from death to life. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray uh, in your mercy you will give us discerning minds that can discern truth from error. But above all, we pray that you would give us a love of your word and a love of you, the true and living God, who has revealed yourself to us in your Son through your word, so that we would have a horror of ever departing from it and and, and we would be appalled when people put their own lying and fallible words in your mouth. Our Father, help us to know the truth and to grow up into maturity so that we are people who bear good fruit that honours you. In Jesus' name, amen.